This is the podcast for RUF at the University of Texas. A community for students to experience God's grace and express God's grace to others. For more information, visit www.ruf.org ut. Or find us on Instagram at TexasRUF. We just sang a song called Yet Not I But Through Christ in Me. And we sing this song a lot. I love this song. Um, I think it does a really good job of capturing who we're trying to be at RUF. We are trying to be a community that says, yet not I, but through Christ in me. That in a world where as you get off of your Southwest Airlines flight, the flight attendant tells you, just be kind. We say, well, yeah, Kindness is good, and we would like to be kind, but if I'm, if knowing my heart, if I'm going to be able to do that, I need God's help. The flight attendant can't just talk me into doing it. And uh, we are a group of people that are becoming more and more disenchanted with ourselves and more and more captivated by Christ. And so what we do every large group and what we've been doing this semester is we look at the Bible to see who Jesus is, who is this Christ that we put our hope in. And tonight we're going to look at how Jesus is our righteousness. Jesus is our righteousness. So before we go any further, let's read our passage. So this is Luke 18, 9 through 14. It says, He also told this parable, he being Jesus, to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. And the Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray now for the teaching of it. Lord, I just ask that you would be with me right now. Please speak through me. Lord, your words are more precious than anything, and I pray that I would just not get in the way of them. Um, I pray that you would impress your words upon everyone's heart tonight and that we might see you more clearly. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You know how people say, you know, all the time when they're talking, you know? You know what I'm talking about, you know? This past May, in a post-game interview, uh, John Morant of the Memphis Grizzlies said, you know, 78 times in five minutes. It's crazy. Y'all should go watch that video. It's pretty hilarious. Someone took all the snippets, spliced it together, and you can just watch them do all 78, like one after the other. It's really funny. And we all do this. We all use this phrase, you know. And I think that we do this. I think we use this phrase so much. One, because it's just an easy kind of filler phrase. But Two, I think we do it because we're really fishing for a nod of approval from our listener. We really want to know that they're hearing us and that they do know and and that what we're saying is right and that we're right and that we're okay. 
We all really just want to know that we're okay. Even if you're currently living in a way as a college student right now, you probably think about the way that you live in terms of how everyone else has lived during college, right? So you've heard stories over the years, watched older siblings, or heard about your, how your parents go off to college, and how they lived kind of crazy, but then they pull it all together afterwards and seem to be doing fine now. And so even if you know that you're not living the way you're supposed to be right now, you think about it in terms of what they did because you want to know you're okay. You want to know what you're doing is okay. Or maybe you do this by asking other people after your test how much they studied so that you know that you're not the only one who barely studied at all. Or maybe you get a group of college students to come eat queso with you at Cabo Bob's every Friday so you don't have to do it alone, and that way you know that you're okay. Jokes aside, we all want to know that we are okay. That's, I, I want to suggest that this desire to know that we're okay is reflective of the fact that deep down, we all know that we're being watched. In other words, God sees you. Our lives are lived before his eyes. This is a fact that the Bible seems to take for granted. And not only that, but the Bible seems to have, says that God has a standard that he wants you to live up to. And so I think the reason why we're all sort of looking around asking, am I okay? Is because we're really trying to figure out if we're okay in the absolute cosmic sense. Are we right with God? What thoughts are going on behind that unshakable holy gaze? In other words, are we righteous in God's eyes? That would be the word that the Bible would probably use. Am I really okay? And I think the second question that goes with that is, how do I know if I'm okay? If I'm okay, how would I know? Okay, so that's the big question. Am I okay? And how do I know if I'm okay? And I think that actually that's the question that this passage that I read for us is attending to tonight. I mean, what you have here in this passage is two different men who are both asking the question, am I okay? And they both have different answers. Okay, so what I want to do tonight is the way I want to structure this talk is rather than having like two or three points, I just want to march character by character through this parable. So first we'll take a look at the Pharisee and then we'll look at the tax collector and then we'll look at what Jesus says about them. Okay, so let's start with the Pharisee. Now, as you might know, uh, the Pharisees are the religious elites of this day. So these are guys that deeply value their religion they would probably have, uh, they probably would have had huge swaths of what we call the Old Testament just completely memorized. They would pray like more than we could possibly imagine praying. And they would even set up extra laws for themselves to protect themselves from ever even coming close to breaking God's real laws. So they would have these buffer laws. And so I just want to pause there for a second and say that I think that if you've been around church long enough, if you've been around RUF long enough, we can get to the the Pharisees in a story and our eyes can just kind of glaze over and we can just go into autopilot just like, oh yeah, it's the Pharisees again. These guys are idiots. Like they, I would never be this self-righteous. So let's just kind of laugh at the Pharisees together. And that's easy to do, but I mean, 
really think about the description that I just gave of these people. Okay, was anything I said inherently bad? They pray a lot. They memorize the Bible. They go out of their way to avoid sinning. Those are all really good things. So what's so bad about the Pharisees? And why is Jesus so hard on them all the time? Well, let's just start with this guy. How does he deal with this question of, am I okay? Well, look at how he prays. Look at how he prays in the passage. He says, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. What's he doing there? Well, he's simply comparing himself to others. He deals with this question of, am I okay, by comparing himself to others. And if you're like me, when you're grappling with the question of, am I okay, this is the first place you go. This is the easiest thing to do, is you just look at other people. You compare yourself to other people. And actually, maybe you're comparing yourself to the Pharisee right now and thinking, well, yeah, sure, I compare myself to others, but at least I don't go stand in public and pray out loud, like thanking God that I'm not like this person that I'm standing right next to. Again, that's kind of our autopilot, like Pharisees are idiots mode. But when we use comparison to convince ourselves that we're okay, it's really not that different than standing and thanking God that we're not like another person. I mean, we, we say this to ourselves. Well, I know I'm okay because I'm not as bad as them. Or I know I'm okay because I'm just doing the same thing that everyone else does. We do this all the time as Christians. God, thank you that I'm not like the people in my classes that don't believe in you. God, thank you that I'm not like those students who claim to be Christians but get, but get drunk every weekend. God, thank you that I'm not like those judgmental students who judge me for getting drunk every weekend. God, thank you that I'm not like racist conservatives. God, thank you that I'm not like pro-choice liberals. God, thank you that I don't dress like them. God, thank you that I don't cuss like them. I mean, whatever it may be, we all do this all the time. At least I'm not like them. I'm guilty of this too. And you know why I think we do this? I think it's because if we are going to decide for ourselves whether we're righteous or not, Comparing ourselves to others is our only shot. If you want to be righteous out of your own strength, the only standard, the only bar that's actually low enough for you to live up to is the bar that other people set. Because the real standard, God's standard, is impossible to live up to. Did you know that Jesus said that anyone who hates someone has murdered them in their heart? I mean, for most of us, like, if you're like me, you think, well, I mean, I'm never going to murder anyone. Like, I kind of got that one covered. That's kind of a comparison layup, it seems like. But Jesus says that the hatred in our hearts for the people across the political aisle from us, across the college football aisle from us, or whatever aisle, that hatred in our hearts for those people is as serious as murder. Did you know that if you were to live your whole entire life perfectly, but then one day you left your house and you kind of envied someone else's car, or like you just weren't grateful for your car, that would be enough for you to deserve hell, according to God's standard. I mean, this is the standard, this is the standard that we really need to know whether we're okay by. And so if we try to do what the passage says the Pharisee does, which is trust in ourselves that we are righteous. If we want to try to convince ourselves that we're okay, comparing ourselves to others is really our only chance. 
The Pharisee clearly doesn't get how high the bar really is, because if he did, he wouldn't be trying to do this the way that he's doing it. Okay, so then what do we do? I mean, that sounds pretty hopeless. Uh, I mean, how are we ever going to live up to that standard? How do we become okay? How do we know that we're okay? Well, let's look at the second character. Look at the tax collector in verse 13. What does he do? It says, he beats his breast and says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. In other words, he answers the question of, am I okay? By admitting that he's not okay. He answers the question of, am I right with God? By saying, I'm not right with God. Earlier on in Jesus' ministry, he preached probably his most famous sermon, which is called the Sermon on the Mount. And that sermon starts with a series of statements called the Beatitudes. And in the Beatitudes, Jesus says this, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. What does he mean by these things? What does Jesus mean? What does it mean to be poor in spirit, or to mourn, or to be meek, or to hunger and thirst for righteousness? Well, I think that Jesus actually shows us exactly what he means by those things in this parable with the character of the tax collector. So let's look at him. So think about this. The tax collector would have been seen by other Jews as a total traitor. He was someone who cooperated with the Romans and benefited from their occupation of Jerusalem. Everyone else would have seen him as a sinner of a pretty high order. But if we compare him to the standard that Jesus lays out in the Sermon on the Mount, we see that the tax collector is poor in spirit. Blessed are the poor in spirit. He's poor in spirit because he recognizes his spiritual poverty, his utter brokenness, sinfulness before God. He is poor in spirit because he comes to God with nothing in his hands. He says, I have nothing to offer you, God. And then he mourns over that spiritual poverty. Blessed are those who mourn. When he beats his breast, that was something that Romans did during mourning rituals. Uh, back in that day. That was a big part of it. They'd beat their breasts and tear their clothes and gnash their teeth. It was very dramatic. And he's signaling that he's mourning over his sin when he does that. Okay, he shows his meekness. Blessed are those who are meek. Which is really just another word for humility or weakness. Through the, and he shows his meekness through the way that his eyes are cast down. He won't even lift his eyes toward heaven because he's ashamed. He knows he's unworthy to approach God. And then he hungers and thirsts for righteousness. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And that he knows he doesn't have it. He recognizes that he actually needs righteousness from God. And begs him for it like a hungry person begs for food. So bottom line, he stands before God and says, God, I'm not okay. And I need you to make me okay. I'm not righteous, but I need your righteousness. And then do you see what happens after that? God makes him okay. I mean, this is the amazing thing about this parable. Look at what Jesus says in verse 14. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. And that word there, justified, comes from the same word where the same word that's translated righteous 
um, and other in other places in the Bible. So in other words, when this tax collector admits that he's not righteous, God gives him righteousness. When he stopped clinging to his own righteousness, God actually gives him righteousness. He became poor in spirit, and God made him part of the kingdom of God. He mourned over his sin, and God comforted him with forgiveness. He was hungry for righteousness, and God filled him. So how do you become okay with God? How do I know that I'm okay? Well, it seems like what this passage is telling us is that you have to do two things. First, you have to admit that you're not okay. You don't, you, and you can't blame shift. You can't defend yourself. You can't compare, compare yourself to others. You have to admit that according to God's standards, you are not okay. And second, you just have to ask God to make you okay. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And you know what? He will do it. I mean, that's the crazy thing about Christianity, is that's what we believe. We believe if you ask God to make you righteous, he will do it. Okay, that's a pretty big claim. The claim is that if you'll just admit to God that you're not righteous and ask him to make you righteous, he will do it. If you're hearing what I'm saying, you're probably asking some follow-up questions. One of them's probably how, and one of them's probably why. I want to talk about both of them. Let's start with how. How does God do this? He does it through Jesus. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says this. This is important. For our sake, he, God, made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Okay, so let's unpack that. Uh, What Paul is saying there is that when Jesus was crucified, he became sin. He fell under God's wrath. And at the same time, he gave his righteousness to us. It was a total switch, like Freaky Friday. Here's an illustration to help you think about how this works. Let's say that tomorrow I got drafted to the NBA. And... I had my first season. I heard like a couple Snickers, which is like appropriate for sure. Um, I had my first season, and as anyone could have guessed, I played literally the worst season of basketball that's ever been played in the NBA. I'm just like a total meme. Everyone knows about me because of how bad I am. And I have the most turnovers ever, uh, lowest shooting percentage ever. Everything. I sucked. Okay. So then one day the commissioner, if there is a commissioner of the NBA, I don't know, (laughs) calls me into his office and I walk in and LeBron James is sitting in there and the commissioner says, all right, you two switch jerseys. And I'm like, okay. And so we switch jerseys and then I walk out of the office And everyone in the whole world treats me as if I have all of LeBron's basketball merit. People are running up to me. They're wanting to take selfies with me. They're wanting my autograph. They're like, just because I'm wearing this jersey, they're just treating me like I'm LeBron. I've all of a sudden been credited with being the best basketball player of all time. And alternatively, everyone hates LeBron. He's walking down the streets. People are like throwing tomatoes at him and whatever you do to horrible basketball players. And... All of my basketball demerit has become his demerit. And it's a goofy example, but that's actually exactly what God does to us in Christ. 
Christ gets credited with all of our unrighteousness, and we get credited with all of his righteousness. We get to take on Christ's merit, and he takes on our demerit. It's ridiculous. It's, it's really the craziest thing ever. And so that, that's, that's how God makes people righteous who ask for it. But now let's talk about why. I mean, why would God do it this way? Like, if you're like me, you might be thinking, if he just credits people with righteousness who don't deserve it, then doesn't that mean that people who um, are really bad are going to have no reason to change? Won't people just abuse that? I think it's a fair question. Back in 2016, CBS put out a story about an 82-year-old man named Dan Peterson, who had just recently lost his wife. And Dan was just really depressed. He says in the interview that there were days where he would literally just sit in his room and look out the window and watch the squirrels and that he was just kind of waiting to die. Um, It's really sad to hear this interview. And this is how he says the first six months after his wife died were. But then this one day, this crazy thing happened where he was shopping at the local grocery store, the Publix, and he hated grocery shopping, the interview says, because it like reminded him of the fact that he was alone and he had never had to shop for himself before. And so he's coming down the aisle, he's coming out of the aisle, and as he's sort of rounding the turn, a mother and her four-year-old son, Nora, come around the corner as well. And it's actually really cool. The whole thing is caught on security footage by the public. But as they come around the corner, Nora, the four-year-old, sort of just reaches out toward him and says, hey, old person, it's my birthday today. And I don't understand how this happened, but for whatever reason, Nora's mom had her phone out and took a picture of that exact moment. And you can see this scowl on the man's face. It must just be from like, I hate being in the grocery store. Who's bothering me right now? And so you see this picture of this little girl like reaching out to this old man. And he's just looking at her like, she did, there was nothing in him that was attractive. But then the next thing that happens is that Nora says, can I give you a hug? And he sort of just starts to tear up and just says, Absolutely. And so then the little girl asks her mom to take a picture of the two of them together. And you can just see in this picture how incredibly happy he is, how this has absolutely made his day. But then it doesn't stop there. And this is just ridiculous. For whatever reason, this little girl, Nora, decides that this is her new best friend. And that her and her mom go and visit him every single week for the next four years until he dies. And they go to his funeral. And the way that Dan's brother put it in his funeral is that Dan was four years late to his own memorial service because he was basically ready to die whenever Nora found him. That story, go watch it, it'll make you cry. Uh, Do you know what that story shows us? Unmerited favor. The interviewer goes on to ask the mom, why why do you think Nora latched on to Dan like that? What is it about her? Is she just sort of like a really friendly little girl? And the mom says, no, she's like really shy usually. And they're like, well, does she like old people or something? And she says, no, it was senior day in the Publix that day. There were old people everywhere. 
There is no reason that this guy or that this little girl should have just latched on to this old man the way that she did. And her mom, the way her mom put it was that she zoomed in on him like a heat-seeking missile. She showed Dan complete unmerited favor. He didn't deserve it at all. He was just scowling at her. But that unmerited favor totally changed him. It literally gave him life and sustained him for another four years where he was already ready to die. Okay, so then why does God give us the righteousness of Christ when we just don't deserve it? Well, primarily it's just because he loves us, but also as he gives himself away to us completely, even when we completely don't deserve it, that in turn makes us love him and want to obey him. In light of his unmerited favor, we change into people who love God and who love our neighbor and thereby bring him glory and further God's mission of bringing the kingdom of heaven to earth. He's not worried about people abusing it because he knows this is the way that you really change people. So how do you experience God's life-changing, unmerited favor? You have to start by admitting that you aren't okay. You have to start by admitting that you haven't merited it. And then, like Dan Peterson did with Nora's hug, you just receive it. When you cry out to God and say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner, trust that he's heard you and that he has made Christ your righteousness because he promises that he's the God who hears our prayers. That's the invitation tonight. Let's pray. God, we have such a hard time accepting that this is how you are, that you really love us this way. I mean, I confess that even as I'm preaching it now, I'm thinking, are you really this loving God? But you've told us in your word that this is who you are. And so would you let us submit to the authority of your word? Would our feelings not dictate what we think is possible with you, but your very words, what you tell us, Lord? I pray all this in Jesus' name.